Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, once again, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday. We thank you for uh, what we have to look forward to this upcoming week with our uh, Vacation Bible School this week and then with VBS Sunday, uh, the following Sunday. And we pray that your spirit would go forth and work in the hearts of these kids uh, uh, who will be attending already now, uh, that they may be open and, and ready to hear from your word and, and be ready to hear about Jesus and how they can have a relationship with him uh, and that uh, you would be glorified uh, during the whole week. We thank you for your word. We thank you that even as society and the culture around us changes, seemingly year after year, we thank you that your word never changes. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are grateful for that. We anchor our souls into you and into your word. We pray once again your spirit would go forth and work in our hearts and our lives as we take a look at your word and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look up different optical illusions, you'll discover that scientists have actually categorized illusions into three types. Physiological, where your brain fills in gaps in the illusion, Literal, which are illusions that an artist purposely creates to confuse people. And the type most pertinent to today's message, cognitive illusions. Cognitive illusions are ones where it depends on the person looking at them and their personality. For instance, what do you see here in this picture? You see a pink prism, right? Most, anybody here see a pink prism here? All right, well, let's wake up a little bit. Are we awake yet? Okay, who here sees a pink prism? Okay, now I see more hands. All right, and who here sees a lit up corner? Oh, what? Would you believe me that this is a photo of just a lit up corner? This prism does not exist. This is a, a way uh, a corner is, is lit up th th with different angles. We might have all just seen a prism at first because that's what makes the most sense to us. But then once it was revealed that it was actually only a lit up corner, uh, then, we, then we saw it for what it really was. This one is wild. What do we see here? We see 15 poorly computer-generated rectangles, right? Okay, so some, someone's saying no. Would you believe me that the rectangles don't actually exist? In reality, this is a poorly computer-generated rendition of actually 16 circles. And if you don't see it yet, some of you may not believe me, and it took me a minute to see it myself, but look and focus on between the rectangles and all of a sudden, those circles appear in between the rectangles. And if they don't for you, that's okay. This is one of the more difficult illusions for us to wrap our brains around, and that's why it's called a cognitive illusion. But I don't think anyone, any, anything tops the point I'm trying to make here more than the viral 2015 image, the dress. Okay. <laughs> all right. So I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about here. I know you all looked up what the actual colors were seven years ago, but what does this look like to you? Who sees blue and black, okay? And who sees white and gold? 
All right, very good. That's what I expected, about half and half. Not only was this a social media phenomenon with it reaching 10 million tweets in just one week, but it became the subject of neuro and vision scientific investigation. Spoiler alert, the actual colors are blue and black. All right. <laughs> All right, do we have any prizes for them anyway? Okay. With all three of these cognitive optical illusions, for a lot of us, we just could not wrap our brains around the reality of what we were perceiving. And in our passage this morning, after everything Jesus has just described about himself as the living bread out of heaven and how one must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be given eternal life, even a group of Jesus' Galilean disciples simply could not wrap their brains around the reality of what they were perceiving. But again, like we've been talking about for the past couple of months, even if we can't wrap our finite human minds around the truth of God, that doesn't make it any less true, right? What, is, what was this confusion by these disciples and what does that mean for us today? Well, we've talked a lot over the past couple of months about this conversation Jesus has with the remnant of upwards of 20,000 people that he had miraculously fed with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He explained to them that what they wanted was purely physical and only what they wanted to have happen in their lives when what they really needed to be focused on was the spiritual and what God wanted for their lives. Repentance of sin, taking Jesus for all he claimed he was, especially as the sacrifice for sin uh, he talked about in reference to his flesh and blood, be given eternal life and be resurrected someday in the future unto that eternal life. And all throughout that conversation, the crowd still could not let go of their physical and selfish way of thinking and wrap their minds around the spiritual meaning that Jesus was really getting at. We know from Mark's account of all of this that Jesus and his friends originally ended up in Gennesaret, a neighboring village of Capernaum in the region of Galilee. But according to the first verse of our passage this morning, apparently Jesus made his way back to Capernaum at some point and may have even taught about these same things he had just talked with that crowd about before. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 59. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's perfectly okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 6, 59. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, chapter 6, verse 59, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read in verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. After one of these expositions of him being the bread of life and about his sacrificed flesh and blood in the synagogue of Capernaum, there is a group of Jesus' followers in Galilee that begin to understand what Jesus is talking about, and they don't like it. They were starting to understand Jesus' spiritual messages, but they could not wrap their minds around the truth of it. They were just content to just stick with what they already knew and were comfortable with. Verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when, he heard, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now th 
This is not the 12 disciples that Jesus officially called to full-time discipleship because of the context of this section. A little further on in verse 66, and you can jump ahead of that and see this, we see that these Galilean disciples in Capernaum that day still didn't have a change of heart, had enough of Jesus' radical teaching, and actually stopped following him or listening to anything else he had to say. So this is part of a larger group of people that uh, were locally um, uh, to uh, the region of Galilee. This isn't the original 12 called to full-time discipleship. But back to this morning's passage, we see the initial grumblings of these disciples just not wanting to accept the truth of what Jesus was teaching in the Capernaum synagogue, similar to what he talked about with the Gennesaret crowd about that we wrapped up last week. Like I've referenced in the recent past, the feeding of the 20,000, it wasn't just 5,000, it was most likely more like 20,000 with the women and the children, was another turning point in Jesus' ministry. Year one of Jesus' ministry was the year of preparation. Year two was the year of popularity. And all that culminated in the crowd wanting to forcibly make Jesus the king they wanted, which precipitated him sending them away, including the twelve, and then him walking on the water and then ending up on this side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But when Jesus would not fulfill the crowd's overwhelming desire to make him king, that was the starting point of Jesus' third and last year of ministry, the year of opposition. And here in our passage this morning, we see the continuation of that. We've seen grumblings happening here. This is the beginning of the year of opposition. As one biblical scholar pointed out, it was clear to this group of Galilean disciples that Jesus was simply not going to do what they wanted him to do. They've waited long enough, and he just has continued to not do what they want him to do. He just simply was not going to be the messianic earthly king they wanted to kick out the Romans. And so, like humanity always is, the enthusiasm has died down. And now it's starting to turn into opposition because he's not doing what they want him to do. The people liked Jesus as a healer and maybe a good spiritual teacher, but now that he's saying things like, you must take my sacrificed body and blood for yourselves or you're not getting eternal life, that's too much. Jesus has gone a little too far here with these things. That's why they say what they say in verse 60. To them, Jesus' recent statements are hard, difficult, or harsh statements. According to one biblical scholar, the word translated listen in the NASB is better translated accept. That's the key question of doubt here that's still used to reject the gospel message of Jesus today. How could I possibly accept this for myself? Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God's orchestration for and plan of salvation for humanity from their sin and the gift of eternal life was purposely made in such a way that it simply could not be stumbled upon by the world's wisdom. This is why a lot of the world's most intelligent people don't even believe that God exists. When one looks at the salvation plan with the world's understanding, it's the same exact response as the people in our passage this morning have. This is a hard message to believe and accept. It's hard to believe 
and accept because it can only be accepted if God has opened one's spiritual eyes to see it and understand it. Jesus referenced that truth back in verses 44 through 45. If God in his sovereignty has not opened one's eyes, then the gospel message will always be hard to accept. Impossibly so, in fact. Jesus' response to this group of people also reveals what's going on in their hearts. Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? The word for stumble is the word in the Greek for obstacle to faith, a wall to faith, or, in other words, an offense, being offended by it. What Jesus is specifically referring to is what he had already said in verse 51, that anyone who takes the bread of life for themselves is really taking the flesh of Jesus, which he gives for the world, for themselves. This is a direct reference to Jesus' body that he will be giving up as a sacrifice for the entire world, about a year from the point that he's saying these things. Like we talked about recently, this, along with Jesus' reference to those who wanted eternal life, would also have to drink his blood. This is a purposely shocking illustration. Jesus meant it to be shocking and disturbing. If one merely took this as having an entirely physical meaning, it would be offensive. But here in verse 61 of today's passage, Jesus means it in another deeper and spiritual way of being offensive. And here's what I mean. It was offensive in both ways, both on the surface and physical and the deeper spiritual meaning. Where is Jesus right now as he's saying these things in our passage? Remember what we read in verse 59? Where is he? He's in the synagogue, in a Jewish synagogue. Who is Jesus talking to? Fellow Jewish people, right? And what had the Jewish people, especially under the teaching of the Pharisees, been priding themselves on? On their personal righteousness in following the Mosaic law. But if Jesus is talking about sacrificing his physical body for the world and one needing to accept that for themselves in order to receive eternal life, what is he really getting at? That following the Mosaic law isn't good enough. That he was giving his life as a sacrifice in reference to the Mosaic law as the sacrifice for sin. And if one needed Jesus to be a sacrifice for sin, that meant that everything they had been following in the law wasn't good enough. And that meant they could never be good enough to earn eternal life themselves. The truth that Jesus is revealing to them, that they needed a sacrifice, and they needed to take that sacrifice for themselves in the knowledge that they could not earn heaven themselves to atone for their sin, guess what would be thoroughly offensive to Jesus' Jewish audience? The Apostle Paul makes the very same statement when he writes in the same chapter of salvation in Jesus not being able to be discovered through worldly wisdom. He says, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles, the rest of us, say it's all nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. 
The same word in meaning for offended here is used by Jesus in verse 61 and Paul in this verse we just read. Now let's extend that to today, since nothing's changed in or for humanity in the past 2,000 years. Your personal system of morality, your personal system of morality is not good enough to get you into heaven. Okay? Your personal system of morality is not good enough to get you into heaven. Your view that you are inherently good enough to just automatically get in is completely unbiblical and thoroughly wrong. There is nothing in God's word that states that one must partake in certain sacraments or do certain rituals. That's adding to the word of God. In fact, every human being, including the guy standing before you, is a sinner. It doesn't matter who you are, nor how much you try to justify things. And every human being's sin separates them from most holy God. Now, depending on who you're talking to, that's incredibly offensive. Being told that you need Jesus is offensive. But just as not being able to wrap one's mind around the gospel, being offended by the revelation of one's sinful state just does not have any bearing, effect, or change on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of times, people can't see past the offense of the revelation of their sinful state to see the unending love of Jesus and what he's done out of love for us. If one cannot get past being offended, they can and will never get to experience the overwhelming depths of God's peace and love through Jesus. Faith in Jesus must start with getting past being offended and giving in to just repenting of that sin and taking Jesus' sacrifice for ourselves. I love what Jesus says next to this group of people, verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, Jesus is referencing, hey, if you were offended before at me telling you your following of the Jewish law is still not good enough for eternal life, then you're really going to be offended when you see the Son of Man ascending back to where he came from. And that statement would be just as offensive. Here's why. Firstly, Jesus is referencing his pre-existence in heaven before coming to earth. This is yet another reference to his deity and John's revelation that Jesus has always existed as God and has always existed with the Father. In addition, Jesus has already referenced his earthly death as a sacrifice for the world in verse 51. But even though Jesus' Jewish audience would have understood uh, going to be with God at the point of death, that passing on would not be visibly witnessed by anyone, the spiritual aspect of that. So, as noted by one biblical scholar, if Jesus is going to be visibly ascending back to where he existed before, i.e. heaven, then what would have to happen in between that he's implying? Him visibly coming back to life in order to visibly ascend back to heaven. 
He's already talked about dying. So something else visible needs to happen in between his death and visibly ascending back to heaven. So all those who are grumbling at the truth of what Jesus was claiming about himself, Jesus says, when you see me visibly coming back to life after my sacrifice and death, and then visibly see me ascend back to heaven, which is where I existed before, then you'll remember what I'm saying to you right now, and you're going to have to make a decision at that point. You're going to either continue in being offended at me, or accept that everything I've claimed about myself to be proven true by these visible events. Once again, Jesus directs the group's attention back to the spiritual rather than the physical and the worldly way they've been thinking. Verse 63, it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The term the flesh that Jesus refers to here is a human and physical way of looking at oneself and the world. It's a refusal to see the gravity of one's personal sin, that that sin separates them from most holy God, no matter how much they try to justify it, and that there's nothing we can do about it on our own. It's a purposeful desire to just continue on living life the way they've always lived it. It's a rejection that Jesus died and rose again to save their soul from what the Bible describes as the second death or banishment to an e eternal place of torment without God's presence called hell. It's a refusal that anything really needs to change in one's life and instead getting offended when told they need to repent of their sin. That's all wrapped up in the term the flesh. And what does Jesus say about that? It profits nothing. It really is nothing. All that it will result in is you going to that eternal place of torment. I'm going back, I'm going to come back to verse 63 more, but I want to flesh this out a little bit more, no pun intended, with the, with the rest of what Jesus says in this passage, verses 64 through 65. But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This connects back to what we were talking about towards the beginning of this message, a reiteration of what Jesus has already referenced in verses 44 through 45. Here is the beautiful truth of the salvation of a person's soul. And I don't know if you've thought about this in this way before. Every member of the Trinity is highly involved in your salvation. Every member. Sometimes we may have this understanding that it's just between us and Jesus. And it's entirely our decision to either accept what Jesus did on our behalf or reject it. But what Jesus himself reveals here is a beautiful work of art of all three members of the Trinity working together to bring this salvation to a person. We know from the rest of Scripture that God the Father established his encompassing plan for the earth that all three members of the Trinity would create sometime in eternity past, before God laid the foundations 
for that earth. This plan includes everything that's ever happened in world history and everything that's going to happen in world history. That plan includes how many days each of our individual lives will last and everything that's going to happen in the days of those lives. And that plan includes who he will open the spiritual eyes of in order to lead to put faith in Jesus for the salvation of their soul and who he won't. Now that's a hard pill for us to swallow as humans and seemingly unfair. But again, it's not up to us, nor does our understanding of what's fair and what's not change what the truth is. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity and God himself, has been very clear about this truth in verses 44 through 45 and then reiterated in verse 65, which we just read in today's passage. That is the overall and ultimate plan. The plan of creation of humanity was executed by way of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as the Apostle John describes in the first chapter of his Gospel. And simply put, as the writer of Hebrews says, all those who lived before the Son of God was born in human flesh and named Jesus were given the gift of eternal life and heaven by way of simple faith in God and his promises, the most important of which being that a deliverer would come for humanity. This promise was made by God the Father to the very first two humans at the point of their original sin, the curse of that sin on the rest of humankind and their separation and banishment from God's presence. When God the Father established the old covenant with his people, including the Mosaic law, that was never the end all. In fact, its entire purpose, as the Apostle Paul points out, was to point out how sinful humanity was, that the payment for sin was death, and that they needed a death sacrifice to pay for their sin. That was temporarily done by way of animal sacrifices as temporary substitutes, but that was still not the ultimate promise God wanted his people to remember. In fact, all of it pointed towards the arrival and fulfillment of all of it by the Son of God who would come as the ultimate death sacrifice for all time to not only be the basis for forgiveness of sin, but completely remove the condemnation and the effect of our sin. All this time, it was the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who was leading the Old Testament prophets and their associates to write down these prophecies and promises of this coming messianic sacrifice for sin and remind God's people of who was coming to fulfill it all. And it was by way of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit over a teenage girl named Mary that was the origin of the Son of God taking on human flesh. It's the Holy Spirit who is working through Jesus' words that he had been revealing to his audience in today's passage. As Jesus outright says here in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It's the Holy Spirit who continues to work through the word of God and the gospel message shared. For in God the Father's perfect timing, according to his plan, the Son of God took his last breath on the 
offensive cross, paying for humanity's sin once and for all, as Jesus prophesied in verse 51. And as Jesus referenced in verse 62, the Son of God visibly rose again from that sacrifice of death and visibly ascended back to where he pre-existed with the Father since eternity past. Those who God the Father chose in his perfect plan to put their faith in the Son of God's sacrifice for their sin, he uses the Holy Spirit to open their spiritual eyes and draw them to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection in payment for that sin. The person is seen as righteous in the eyes of the judge or the Son of God, which Jesus states in chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, and now has the full assurance that their soul will go to be with the one who died for it. During the rest of the course of that person's earthly life, it's not lived according to the flesh, what Jesus talks about in verse 63. That is the world's standards, that is selfish desires and a heart that cares nothing for the things of God. But it's a life that's lived with the, with the transformation of the Holy Spirit and the life given by the Holy Spirit. Again, a work of God referenced by Jesus in verse 63. The Holy Spirit makes that person into a new person, more and more into the likeness of the Son of God, growing faith, growing characteristics of God and that faith, known as the fruits of the Spirit, releasing from a life of desiring sin, breaking the chains of depression, anxiety, and fear, giving a brand new view of the world, and ultimately leading that person to live a life pleasing to the Son of God as their king. And someday in the future, that king is going to return. First, to reunite the souls of those who God the Father chose and gave him with their physical bodies, uh, glorifying them to enjoy the millennial kingdom and subsequent new heavens and new earth, an event that once again Jesus is clear about in verse 40 and verse 44. At the second return, the God-King will annihilate the kingdoms of the world, attacking Jerusalem by just speaking a word and set up an earthly kingdom that will last for a thousand years, one of abundance, peace, and justice, unlike this world has ever experienced, and one that those God the Father has chosen will be able to serve under Jesus in. Lastly, Pretty soon after those thousand years are over, those who have been chosen by God the Father will be able to enjoy a brand newly created heavens and earth, one where we will be able to dwell with all three members of the Trinity for all of eternity. Similar to our message opening, you may have an understanding of Jesus that is one you can only wrap your mind around, that he was a good teacher, he was a good man, he was a rebel against the Roman Empire, got killed for it, and nothing more than that. I hope that you now have a much bigger understanding in accordance with the truth of God's word, and that understanding changes your faith. As Jesus connects together in verses 63 and 65, all three members of the Trinity are highly invested and involved in a beautiful weaving together of the salvation of a person's soul. 
It's something we should meditate on as we read God's word and express our gratefulness to all three members of the Trinity for all they've done to secure our salvation and our eternal hope. Jesus outright told this group of Galilean disciples that some of them would not believe his claims. And in immediate fulfillment, we see them physically leaving any commitment to following him anymore in verse 66. They let their offense at the things Jesus has used to describe himself and their need for him to be their sacrifice to pay for their sin let them decide what they next did. Don't let any offense at the truth of your sinful state and that no amount of good you can do can ever hope to earn favor with God, let alone entrance into heaven, keep you from surrendering to the truth. Your salvation has already been won for you. You just need to surrender to it in repentance and taking Jesus for yourself. If you've never made that decision through prayer before God and you feel a churning in your innermost being right now to surrender yourself to him in repentance, guess what that is? That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to God through Jesus' payment on your behalf. Answer that call right now. We've been given the indescribable gift of restoration to God and a vibrant relationship with him, invested in by all three members of the Trinity. By Jesus revealing that in his words, our spirit and life. There is so much included in that, in, the, in that phrase, spirit and life as we've touched on today. Not only eternal life, but the Holy Spirit ministering to our souls, reminding us of who we are as God's children, giving us the strength and wisdom in every situation, guarding our hearts and minds with the peace of God, and making us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Verse 63, one last time. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you spoke in the synagogue in, in Capernaum 2,000 years ago that are just as relevant, just as powerful to today. We thank you that all three members of the Trinity have woven together this beautiful work of art known as the salvation of the human soul. We thank you for opening our eyes to see the truth of what you have for us in your word. That we need to surrender to you, repent of our sin, take you as the savior from that sin and the king over the rest of our lives. I pray that if there's anybody who hasn't done that yet, that they would do so right now. Come to God in prayer and, and in repentance and take you as, Jesus, take you as savior and king. And Lord, for those of us who have made that decision, and are seeking uh, the Holy Spirit's transformation to live a life pleasing to you, I pray that we would see the, the powerful beauty of it all, and that we would never take anything for granted, and that we would continue to, each and every day, surrender more and more of ourselves to the Holy Spirit's transformation so that we may be all uh, transformed into the likeness and the standard and the full measure of Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.